Welcome back to another week on the Brainwaves Podcast. I'm Jim Siegler. I think we got a great show for you this week covering a pretty big topic in neurology, dystonia. And to bring you more on the subject, Dr. David Coughlin, who's a movement disorders fellow at Penn, has joined me. You'll remember him from a few other shows back on the treatment of Parkinson's disease and on serotonin syndrome. Welcome back to the show, David. Thank you again for having me. For today's show, you interviewed Dr. Andres Daik, who's an assistant professor of neurology at Penn and is a specialist in movement disorders. But before we get to that interview, can you kind of summarize for us what dystonia is? Yeah, absolutely. So dystonia, we think, is the probably the third most common movement disorder that we see in our clinic after Parkinsonisms and tremor syndromes. It's probably generally under-recognized, though, given its heterogeneity. And as we'll discuss, the symptoms can be extremely variable and involve just slight muscle cramping, maybe of just one part of the body when performing a specific action, or they can involve many, many parts of the body be, can be extremely debilitating. Yeah, I, th- I think that it's interesting because it's such a heterogeneous condition and it's really just an abnormality in tone that, that can be present all the time or can come and go or can fluctuate and can affect very different parts of the body. Like you mentioned, that it's it's often very difficult for us to recognize and that's led to a lot of underdiagnosis and delay in diagnoses for these patients. And we've covered some of the basics about how to identify dystonia in a prior episode just a couple of weeks ago, looking for things like specificity as in the case for writer's cramp, looking for overflow activation when an unrelated extremity kind of can involuntarily or pathologically activate with the movement of an arm or leg. So we're going to skip over the exam here, and I'll just refer the listener to that show. And then that takes us right to your interview with Dr. Dake. So we started by covering the two-axis system for classifying dystonia, and this is a system that has been adopted by the Movement Disorder Society. So we think of a two-axis system. The first axis basically has to do with phenomenology. Like the features of a dystonia examination. Along with historical features as well. You want to know the age of the patient when the dystonia started. You want to know which areas of the body are involved in the dystonia. You want to know what was the temporal pattern for the development of dystonia. Was it something that was developed overnight? Or did this progress over a few years or months? And you also want to, want to see whether the dystonia is happening on its own or it's happening in the setting of other neurologic conditions. And all this is just the first axis. That's correct. So the first axis has to do with the phenomenology of the exam itself as well as the historical aspects of the presentation. And once you've established that and characterized that very thoroughly, then you want to figure out, well, why do patients have this? And that's where we get our axis two. That's right. So axis two is pretty long and really has to do with the etiology. Many of the cases can be genetic, and sometimes you'll find a family history of dystonia, and that sometimes gives it away. But many times you won't have a family history of dystonia, and that doesn't mean that it's not genetic. Another possibility... Here is where Dr. Dake elaborates on the various non-genetic causes of dystonia. Um, And this can happen because of structural issues, vascular insults, toxic, or otherwise drug-induced issues as well. And medication history, particularly a history of exposure to dopamine blockers, is something that you want to be able to document. And then, of course, it's important to rule out these things because some of them may change your management fairly drastically, and some of them are actually reversible as well. And once you've ruled out these acquired forms of dystonia, you're left with idiopathic. Um, again, all of this is within your axis too. But before we've covered these cases individually, I thought we could go over some of the basic anatomy and specifically the body distributions and how we describe dystonia first. 
Uh, typically, we conceptualize dystonia by either focal, affecting one part of the body, segmental, affecting a single segment. There's also hemibody dystonia, which is important to recognize, or multifocal or generalized. So here's Dr. Dake again. So one of the ways we think about it is focal dystonia. And a focal dystonia, which is probably the most common form of dystonia we see, is a dystonia that really affects one area of the body, be it the face, the mouth, the neck, the arm, the legs. It can really affect anywhere that you have skeletal muscle. I always reference writer's cramp as an example of this. What else would you characterize as a focal dystonia, David? And why does that matter? So focal dystonias are probably still the most common thing that we see in our clinic. The most common is definitely cervical dystonia, which is often idiopathic and can happen in isolation. But other forms of focal dystonias can be blepharospasm, which often doesn't occur just in isolation, is usually part of a larger syndrome. And other more rare things can be oromandibular dystonia or spasmodic dysphonia. One of the things that we think about when we start seeing a dystonia that only affects just one part of the body or relatively few is that we can actually offer these people fairly good relief by just using botulinum toxin. And for some patients, botulinum toxin works really well for focal dystonias. And as we kind of progress up the anatomy chain, then we get to segmental dystonia. Here's Dr. Dick again. It's a section of the body that's affected. So contiguous areas, let's say the neck and the arm, for example, or the face and the neck. So, Other than a difference in the semantics, why is it important to distinguish focal from a segmental dystonia? Well, so the exam and distinguishing a focal dystonia from a segmental dystonia can be important because it might lead you down different pathways as far as etiology. For example, certain types of segmental dystonias may be genetic in nature and might raise your suspicion that one of these conditions exists. Hemidystonia is dystonia that affects only one side of the body. So if a patient has dystonia, let's say, in their right arm and their right leg, but there is no dystonia on the left, and it's important to identify that phenotype because it is highly indicative of a central lesion. So just by chance, it would be very unusual for idiopathic dystonia to only affect one side of the body. It's always important to rule out that a patient doesn't have a history of stroke or a perinatal stroke or in more ominous cases, a mass growing in their brain. And these patients always need imaging to rule that out. So another axis we're talking about is the temporal pattern. So the overwhelming majority of dystonias are fairly constant throughout the day, but if there are clear fluctuations in symptoms, that can be a, an important clue for a few rare diagnoses. So Absolutely. So I was, as I was saying before, dystonia can be present at rest, it can be present with action, or in both of these situations. And that can, of course, make the diagnosis very tricky. The symptoms can also uh, be episodic. There is this condition called dopa-responsive dystonia, in which the symptoms tend to come out the most towards the end of the day. So they have this diurnal pattern in which patients wake up in the morning and they feel fine, but as the day goes by, their dystonia starts to come out. So dopa-responsive dystonia is a pretty unique form of a generalized dystonia that's worth talking a bit more about because, as the name suggests, it's a very treatable form of dystonia. David, can you kind of tell us more about what dopa-responsive dystonia is? Absolutely. So dopa-responsive dystonia, it's actually a family of conditions that are related to mutations uh, along the synthesis pathway uh, for dopamine itself. And there's three that come to mind initially, and they're mutations that happen in the tyrosine hydroxylase gene, those that happen in the GTP cyclohydrolase genes, and sepiapterin is the third one. 
They typically happen in children. They have different phenomenologies that are related to them. We want to recognize these things um, because they're very treatable, and they're very treatable in a very easy way. So patients are treated with levodopa very effectively, actually. And Cinemet, usually at low doses, is extremely effective for these patients and can be effective for a very, very long time, if not lifelong, actually. And it doesn't take long for the treatment to really take effect? No, it seems to work pretty quickly after you get them up to a proper dose. You don't have to wait too long, actually, which is really nice. Another condition is are the paroxysmal dyskinesias, which can manifest as dystonia, but can also be a form of chorea. And these patients will have episodes of abnormal movement preceded and followed by complete normalcy. And these episodes can be triggered by movement, and these are called as kinesogenic paroxysmal dyskinesias, or they can happen seemingly unprovoked, and those are called the non-kinesogenic paroxysmal dyskinesias. So while there are numerous causes for dystonia, both acquired and inherited, could you tell us a little bit more about the acquired etiologies? Sure. Probably the most common form of the dystonias that we see are acquired dystonias more than the genetic ones. I would say the most important ones uh, include drug-induced dystonias. Usually it's due to exposure to dopamine blockers, so antipsychotics or antiemetics. And it can happen in different ways. So you can have an acute dystonic reaction, for example, the first time you're exposed to a dopamine blocker, metoclopramide or reglin, and have an acute dystonic reaction that usually affects the neck and the lower face. The treatment there, of course, is to discontinue the agent that is causing the dystonia and to treat them with anticholinergics or benzodiazepines. However, patients who don't have this acute reaction, over time, if they continue to take the dopamine blocker agent, could also develop this more chronic forms of dystonia. And particularly, this goes into the realm of what we call tardive dystonia. And the key there is jerky retrocollis. So these patients will develop involuntary movements of the neck where the neck pulls back. It can be painful, it can be quite disabling, and it can become chronic to be recognized as a... So it's easy to start by ruling out a toxic or a drug-induced cause of dystonia. What do you think of next? So depending on the history, you might be concerned about central lesions, things like strokes or hemorrhages, maybe brain tumors. But again, it's very, very dependent on the time course. Uh, for example, with strokes or hemorrhages, you can see either an acute presentation after the initial insult, and sometimes people will develop post-stroke dystonias maybe in the few weeks or so afterwards. If you see somebody who has a relatively rapid onset of dystonia over maybe a course of a few weeks. That's a little bit unusual for the other things that we've been thinking about, idiopathic or genetic. So you would probably want to get a brain scan on these people to look for structural problems, even a brain tumor. I think it's easy for us here, kind of behind the security of these microphones, and for you and Dr. Dake as experts, to know all these things when evaluating a patient who's suspected of having a dystonia. Many patients who have these pretty unusual or kind of heterogeneous symptoms, they eventually end up getting referred to people like you at a tertiary care center. And while this is great for the patients because they're getting better care, there's still a delay in their diagnosis. So kind of briefly, what would you say are some of the pearls for our listeners so when they go back out into practice, they can recognize dystonia and distinguish it from conditions that could mimic it? Well, it's important to listen to your patients, and dystonias can be a little bit confusing, especially those that happen with just specific actions. So if your patient is complaining to you about abnormal hand posturing while writing, that's the thing. It can definitely happen. It's called writer's cramp dystonia. The patient is a big runner, and they start complaining that they're like, 
having a weird limp. Nobody can figure it out. They're like kicking the other side of their foot or something. You know, there are dystonias that happen just while people are running as well. Oftentimes we are sent sort of diagnostic conundrums where people are not really sure whether this is dystonia or something else. Um, Sometimes we're left to try to make the determination about whether a head tremor is cervical dystonia or essential tremor. That's a fairly common issue that we have to see. You mentioned other mimics. These are relatively rare, but not to be missed anyway, is a cervical dystonia versus what we call a pseudodystonia. Um, Unfortunately, there are skeletal issues that can happen in the cervical spine that can sort of mimic a cervical dystonia anyway, Uh, specifically things that lead to atlanoaxial subluxation, which is a risk in patients with Down syndrome and even patients with rheumatoid arthritis as well. Other things that you might want to make sure that nothing is going on is like a fourth nerve palsy, which will make people want to hold their head at a tilt to avoid the diplopia. That's usually fairly easy to tease out on the exam as well. Okay, so you've ruled out these other mimics, and you've ruled out drug-induced causes of dystonia, and you got some neuroimaging that didn't help you cinch the diagnosis. What do you do next in the clinic, David? Well, at that point, then we consider whether the patient would be appropriate for genetic testing or not. Um, There's a few genes that have been identified as a cause of dystonia. The first one that was identified was a DYT1 gene, and this was identified in the late 1990s, early 2000s. It's most common in Ashkenazi Jewish patients, and it's usually a young onset uh, dystonic syndrome that tends to start in the legs and move uh, rostrally. Patients can develop a full-blown generalized dystonia, or it can remain as a segmental, sometimes even as a focal dystonia. It's interesting because this gene has has different penetrants and different family members, even when they share the same genetic mutation. And because the penetrance is variable, it's not a guarantee that if you have a DYT1 mutation that you'll develop a dystonic syndrome. Interesting to know, these patients have an excellent response to DVS, particularly if they undergo this procedure soon after the onset of symptoms. So this makes the argument that really patients with the right clinical characteristics should undergo genetic testing. So DYT1 dystonia is probably one of the most common forms of generalized dystonia that we see in this country. And uh, the classical presentation usually starts in the legs and can sort of ascend upwards into the other segments of the body. These patients also classically do fairly well with DBS as well. DYT6 dystonia is another form of generalized dystonia. And this one is a form of dystonia that we see in Amish Mennonites. The gene there is called the THAP1 gene. And uh, it also is inherited in an autosomal dominant pattern with reduced penetrance, just like DYT1 is. But the key here is that whereas in DYT1, the dystonia tends to start at the feet and move up in the body, in DYT6, the dystonia tends to start in the head and move down. And oftentimes, these patients will have their arms quite affected, their trunks, and laryngeal dystonia. Right, so it's easy to get lost in the numbers and the genes. They're always expanding. Um, but DYT1 torsin A mutations and DYT6 THAP1 mutations are the two of the most common forms that we see in this country anyway. DYT5 dystonia, uh, which is the dopa responsive dystonia, is one that, you, again, you don't want to miss because it can be very sensitive to levodopa and relatively treatable. Um, the last genetic form of dystonia I talked about with Dr. Dake is DYT11 sarcoglycan epsilon mutations, um, also known as myoclonus dystonia. And we mentioned that because it's fairly common and because of its unique clinical characteristics. And this is what we call the myoclonus dystonia. As the name indicates, people have myoclonus and dystonia. 
And you might have either of them in isolation as well. So this is another condition that also has quite a bit of phenotypic variance even between families. These patients also respond very nicely to deep brain stimulation. So another reason why genetic screening should be uh, looked at in these patients. Dr. Dick mentioned a few times now that at least for the genetic dystonias, DYT1 and DYT6 and DYT11, that those patients could benefit from DBS. And you already told us kind of the basics of DBS in a prior show on the treatment of Parkinson's disease. But can you kind of tell us how DBS works in patients who have dystonia and how effective it could be um, and how this technique may be different uh, when you're treating patients with dystonia as opposed to PD or essential tremor? Right. So it's true that we don't have a full grasp of how DBS exerts its effects. And one thing that I should mention, especially for dystonias, is that the results in the efficacy of DBS in dystonia is a little bit more variable than what we usually see in Parkinson's disease and essential tremor. So the target is the globus pallidus pars interna. And in a way, it acts like a pacemaker. So it's like a pacemaker of your brain. And the electric. I just want to make sure that we highlight that some patients get a lot of benefit from DBS, but there are some who are just non-responders. And it can be very tricky to tell who is going to be a responder and who isn't, sometimes preoperatively. We think of a few generalities that DYT1 tends to respond better, DYT6 sometimes a little bit less so anyway. Other things that we think about is if the dystonia has been happening for a very, very long time and patients have contractures that maybe they won't be or have as good a response as somebody who gets it a little bit earlier anyway. Besides DBS, what else do you treat these patients with? So again, depending on which muscles are affected and what symptoms bother the patient the most, oftentimes botulinum toxin injections are very, very appropriate and can be very useful. There are four commercially available toxins in the market. Three of them are type A toxin and one of them is type B. And what they do is they cause chemical denervation of the muscles that are being injected. The effect of the um, For patients who have multiple body parts involved, um, we often think about medications. And the hallmarks of the medication choices that we have to use are the cholinergic medications. Trihexyphenidyl is probably the one that we use the most, but you can also use benztropine. I think cholinergics are an interesting group of drugs because the older you are, the less you can tolerate them. So children with generalized dystonia usually are able to tolerate very, very high doses of them. But as people age, they start having cognitive side effects. We also use muscle relaxants like baclofen and then other things like clonazepam can be helpful as well. The main side effect there is sedation, but it can also worsen depression. And of course, benzodiazepines had a potential for addiction and abuse. So it's always important to keep that in mind. Well, I know that I certainly learned something new about dystonia today, and uh, certainly it's a condition that I don't see on a day-to-day basis when it comes to inpatient neurology, and I hope that our listeners got something out of the show as well. Thanks again for joining me in the studio, David. Thanks again for having me. The senior producer of the Brainwaves podcast would be me, Jim Siegler. Our assistant producer for today's episode was Dr. David Coughlin. Additional commentary by Dr. Andres Dake. Music for this week's episode was produced by the Free Harmonic Orchestra, Rui and Lee Rosevere. And that wraps it up for another week on Brainwaves. Stay tuned next week for the neuromedical benefits of marijuana. Not even kidding. I'm Jim Sigler from Philadelphia. Thanks for listening. <laughs>